Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Welcome back to Better Living. I'm your host, Nick Carissimi. We are talking about the Meadows Museum today, and here to help me with that is their Interim Director of Education. His name is Scott Winterroad. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, so, a previous guest on the show, Suzanne Massey, that works at SMU, came in to talk about all the great things that SMU is doing. And the Meadows Museum came up. I have to admit, I was unfamiliar with the Meadows Museum, and I love to go to art museums. Uh so I went and I checked it out. It's a wonderful facility with a wonderful collection. It's a great place. So I wanted to bring you in and just talk about the museum and what you guys have to offer to the community. The Meadows has has a theme, let's say. And uh, what is it? Tell me about the Meadows. Well, our collecting area is very focused on Spanish um, art, Iberian Spanish specifically. So um, we do have some art objects that are related to um, Latin America and Mexico, but the primary holdings of the collection and where this really develops out from is the uh, initial um, collector of the museum, uh, Augur H. Meadows, um, who was interested in Spanish painting, and um, he's the one that founded the museum in 1962. Okay, so that just blows out my next question, which was, why Spanish art? And it's really just, that was what he was into. So what did what did Mr. Meadows do for the university? How did it become such an important part of SMU? Um, I think it was because of his background here in Dallas. He really made his fortune in oil um, in the city of Dallas. And he was kind of embedded within the community. I think he had had some leanings towards working with SMU before. It wasn't where he went to school. He actually went to Centenary College in Shreveport, um, Louisiana. And there's a Meadows Museum there, too. That's why we call ourselves Meadows Museum Dallas, um, just to make sure there's no confusion between the two. Um, but we did get uh, the holdings that he originally had in Spanish painting. Um, and as I said a minute ago, um, he founded the museum in his, in his ideas and with the university in 1962 but we didn't open to the public until 1965. Is Spanish art a a specialty of yours, or is this something that you have learned about over the years working at the Meadows Museum Dallas? Uh, yes, my background was more in American painting. I started out working at the Eamon Carter Museum when I was much younger, and I worked at the Dallas Museum of Art for a long time and worked very closely on exhibitions of American art as well as doing uh, educational outreach programming. Uh, but since 2003, I've worked primarily in European art collections, but um, the, my the mentor that got me involved in working in museums was the first curator of education at the Meadows Museum, and she was very interested in Spanish art, and so she kind of directed me towards working there long ago. So I've been looking at the Meadows, and I've had relationships with the Meadows for around 20 years now, and uh, I interned there in 1998. And I have a good, strong background now in Spanish painting, yes. Is your is your background then in education, or is it in art, or is it art education? Yeah, um, my my degrees are in art education, so my master's degree is in art education, but my certification's in museum education, art museum-specific education from the University of North Texas. Um, I have a lot of art, art history leveling, and because I've been in museums so long, I know a good deal about art history, and I'm also an artist, so there's a number of things that kind of, I think, play together to 
make me the person that I am working in a museum. This is your world. Yes. This is what you do. Yes. Okay, so you were the curator of education at the Medes Museum for a long time, right? Yes, I've been there for um, almost 10 years. It'll be 10 years in October. Wow. Okay, so uh, and recently you became the interim director of education. Yes. Now, when you are doing this, is it your job to kind of figure out how the museum is going to educate the community? Are you running new programs? Are you just making sure that the older programs are continuing to run? It's both. Um, so we do have an established set of programs that we usually run. And because we're a university museum, we do a lot of academic-focused work with lectures and symposia, um, colloquium, that type of programming that's very rigorous and scholarly. But at the same time, we're also looking always at um, developing new audiences and reaching our community in different ways. So there's a number of different initiatives that we'll do. And we're also very responsive to um, people that we work with on campus, as well as people in the community. Um, I try to stay up with what's happening in the arts district and what's happening with my colleagues at the other institutions. Um, we often collaborate with the Nasher uh, Sculpture Center um, on workshops and things of that nature. So trying to bridge ourselves into the community. So there's always like new avenues that we want to explore with the community. Uh, and, and I do want to uh, talk a lot more about that. But first, I'd like to ask about how the Meadows Museum works with the art community of SMU. Mm -hmm. Now, is there a lot of involvement with students uh, through the museum or is it kind of are they kind of separate entities? Well, I think that we want a lot of involvement from the university and it's one of the major initiatives that we are um, aiming towards always at the uh, at the Meadows. Um, we do have a lot of involvement, of course, with the Meadows School of the Arts. We're part of Meadows School of the Arts and so we work very closely with the, the art department and we work very closely, uh, particularly with the art history department. Um, and previous um, art historian, uh, art history professors that have been there have been curators at the museum. We currently have an art historian on uh, the staff at Meadows School that is a, a really a 17th century and Latin American specialist who's really focused on our area. So we have places where we're very closely enmeshed with the university. And then we also have places where we work with different partners. Um, we've been working in the education department most recently with uh, the uh, English department in freshman writing courses, um, bringing all the freshman writing courses through the museum to actually do a, 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 a work of art prompted writing piece. Mm. And so we actually have three visits that we um, meet the students and they kind of we kind of prepare them for this writing project. Um, there's also a, a newer uh, kind of collaboration that we have with the Spanish language department, which makes a lot of sense with us since we're a Spanish art museum. Absolutely. And so we've been seeing a lot of the uh, um, lower level Spanish classes through the museum in the recent year. Is it more fun or is it more be maybe more difficult to work with students that are not art students when you're bringing them into the museum? Because I could see it maybe go either way, that art students could be a little jaded uh, about the about the art there. Uh, or I could see non-art students maybe not having a lot of interest in it, but then maybe you turn them on. We generally get a good response from the art students as well as the, the non-art students. I think people are really surprised when they come in the museum. They don't realize that it's on campus. They don't realize what's there. A lot of them have visited Europe and they had no idea that we would have collections like we have at the Meadows um, because, you know, it's, it's it's a pretty special museum in the fact that it has most of the major Spanish masters, masters represented in the yes. collection. Um, so I think that's always, it, it's a little overwhelming, I think, when people first come in and they see the 
uh, our, our gallery that has all the altar pieces in it. Um, so I think that uh, people are generally pretty impressed. I don't really get negative responses from most people. I, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. It is it is a phenomenally interesting place and, and overwhelming. I expected it to be maybe one hall with whatever collection you guys had at the time, but it's big. You guys have a big facility. There's a lot of art in there. It's gorgeous. It's got a wonderful layout. I was impressed. So hopefully through our conversation today, people will get more interested and and show up. Well, I think it, it may seem big and overwhelming, but I think it'll surprise you to know that there's only around 200 paintings in the collection. And it then, feels bigger. Yes. And actually, I, I like to say that we're still a very intimately scaled museum as opposed to the Dallas Museum of Art or the museums in Fort Worth, which is all which have all doubled in size mm. in recent years. And so um, in a way, we're a, we're a much more digestible uh, experience because I don't think you have to be there for hours and hours and feel like you didn't see everything. True. Um, but it, it feels big because... Because we do have a lot of really large-scale Baroque paintings. Um, we even have some monumental uh, 20th century and 21st century sculpture. Um, so it's a it's a range of objects. Um, even though even though we primarily, of course, focus in Spanish art, we do have non-Spanish art in our sculpture collection. But um, but I think it 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 has a, a, a grandeur, but then also an intimacy uh, about the way that the building is constructed and the way that the collection is hung. Do you do you prefer that? You mentioned that a lot of times museums are getting bigger. Do you prefer the idea of a more intimate experience when it comes to art? I do actually prefer a more intimate experience um, because um, when you visit the the Prado Museum, the great museum in Madrid, which we work very closely with, our most recent exhibition came straight from the Prado, the Giuseppe Rivera drawing show. But when you're there, you don't feel like you can see everything and you feel a little overwhelmed by how much is there and how much is on view. So I feel like whenever you're at the Meadows, you, you can much more easily kind of digest the story that you're seeing through the paintings and you can... You, you feel more calm and more relaxed to sit down and just really take in a work of art and not try to take in everything. So I don't think it's as overwhelming as a lot of larger museums. Let's talk about how you are getting out in the community. One of the big things that we want to do, as I've mentioned, is make sure that people know this museum is here in town and that they are able to go and check this stuff out. Do you feel good about how you are getting out in the community? Um, yes, we could always do more. We're a very small institution and we don't have the manpower to really do outreach. Um, and my background was doing a lot of outreach when I worked at the Dallas Museum of Art. I was the manager of outreach programs and I ran uh, different types of programs that worked with um, the city of Dallas, different cultural institutions, and also ran the Go Van Go program. When I worked in Los Angeles, I worked at the J. Paul Getty Museum and I did English as a second language classes with adult education all over the city of Los Angeles. And so I was one person in a large institution and I could do outreach. Mm. Um, at the Meadows, we just don't have the manpower to be out there and in all the places in the community, which would be a great thing if we did have that uh, capacity. Uh, but we try in different ways to bring people in. And one of the major ways, of course, we, we focus um, primarily now on the SMU audience and making sure we can get as many SMU students through the door because it's it's astonishing. But uh, there are people on the SMU campus that never come in the museum, and we, we want to change that. Um, but at the same time, uh, we bring a lot of people in from the community. And one of the focuses we have, of course, is K-12 through audiences. We work a lot with art classes because of the specialization of our collection and that we hold so many of these Spanish masters. Mm. And then we also work with a lot of Spanish language classes. And we have, uh, in the past, we've been able to bring 
bring students in and try to collaborate with the university in order to have a tour of the museum and then also have them visit the university. So we try different efforts to do that um, in general, but we want to be as open and as inclusive as we can to the audiences that come to us. So we, we try different things all the time to, to see how we can reach out to different parts of the community and bring them in. Well, you guys are, are doing a lot. I think that maybe the best way that you guys are doing it is with unique programs. I, I noticed on your website, which is Meadow, meadowsmuseumdallas.org, that you do offer a lot of different types of, of education and understanding about art to make it more accessible to people. So what are some of these programs that you're providing, you know, some of these younger kids you were saying, K through 12? Well, we, we, we try to devise uh, specialized programs for certain groups. Um, we do studio tours for um, uh, elementary and secondary groups. So we try to make the experience where they're viewing art but actually making art. So we try to bridge things in that way. Um, we have different kinds of uh, family program offerings, family days, where we just have art activities and performances happening in the galleries. Um, so we, we do different things of that nature that are pretty standard and traditional, um, what we do, what most museums do. Um, sometimes we have more of a specialized focus. Um, we've in the past been able to train teachers that work with us specifically. Um, so they get to know the collections and then they actually will bring their students into the museum. And I try to work with them to develop different yeah. curricular avenues that they can use for that. Right now we're working, we work a lot, I work a lot, I should say, with K-12 through teachers. And we're working with the Region 10 Distribution Center um, to host uh, professional development workshops this summer. And um, we just hosted the first one last week with elementary teachers and um, only three of the teachers out of the 25 that were there had actually been to the museum before. So I feel like I'm reaching a new audience whenever I do something like that because I'm exposing these people to uh, a collection they didn't know was around and hopefully I'll get those people to come back into the museum. So that's kind of uh, the general. I mean, we do a lot of other types of uh, regular programming in the museum from gallery talks um, where we engage, of course, um, everybody from scholars to um, local artists to talk about either exhibitions or parts of the permanent collection. And we have a very active uh, lecture program. And mm. then we have an even more active program for members. That is a, a lecture program that happens on Friday mornings, um, which we recently had our, our new associate professor, um, Adam Jasinski, uh, who is a, a, a Spanish art and Latin American uh, specialist, uh, run that program, which was a, a full house uh, to capacity program uh, in the month of February and March. And that was to get prepared for the Rivera exhibition. So a number of different things that we do. So a lot of it sounds like you're preparing for the art that is coming in or maybe preparing students for the art that is already there when they come in. It's not just taking it all in. They're able to study it and, and get a lot more out of it than just that first viewing. Yeah, that's our, always your hope is that you're having a more deep experience and not just a really fast run through. Unfortunately, in a you know an informal um, museum setting like we are, it's it's hard to do that in an hour with mm. students that come in and out. But our hope is always that if we work with these teachers, if we work with other groups, and we we make these more kind of in depth experience, that that will be extended back into the classroom and they'll have a much deeper and richer experience. Do you find it surprising, or do people find it surprising what they get out of it once they actually know? more about that artist or that painting or the technique that went into it or what was happening at the time. I think a lot of people just see a painting and they think, oh, that's pretty, that's nice. But there's so much more to art when you actually start studying it. It makes it more real and it makes it more important and it kind of opens up your brain. So are, are you seeing people kind of shocked when they're actually able to really intake this stuff? 
Um, yeah, some people I think that aren't as accustomed to coming to museums. Definitely, I've seen that happen. Um, I've seen people be somewhat resistant to some of the ideas that we've had. Uh, you know, and and funny enough, I mean, I find it amusing when people are really resistant to art that was made over a hundred years ago. Um, we're talking about Pablo Picasso and an artist like that because you know it's old art now. It's not really yeah. new. It's not fresh. It's not as um, I think challenging as it was when it was originally made. But um, some people are uh, kind of surprised and, and taken it, off in its ability to. Shock or it, like yeah. it's like that doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like. What what in what way are people still having a problem processing this? I think there's just still that that notion that if art doesn't look you know very naturalistic, if it's not illusionistic in some way, then it's not of the quality of, of what abstract art is. And I think it's just mostly in a, a misunderstanding of. Um, what happened in the 20th century and how art changed in that period and, and the reasons that that occurred. And so I think it's funny, but there, there's a lot of people, I think, that need to get over that hump a little bit. And so that's one of the things that we find challenging. We just had a, a major exhibition of, of modern Spanish masters, and the the purpose of that show was to look beyond Pablo Picasso and Joan Miro and to look beyond Salvador Dali and the, the big Spanish names and to a number of other artists that are lesser known. And so I, I always find that there's, I sometimes find, I shouldn't say I always find, um, but I sometimes find that there's a little bit of a reticence to take in modern art. Getting away from the idea of, well, I could do that. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you hear that a lot? Um, not as much in our museum since we are uh, really old master uh, sure. heavy. I yeah. mean, that's really what Mr. Meadows was most interested in collecting. Um, and we have branched out and we do have some more contemporary pieces in the collection now. Um, but um, but I don't think we hear it as much. But there is a little bit of that resistance still, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Scott Winterode is the interim director of education at the Meadows Museum. Uh, one of the... Things that really caught my attention uh, before you came in here was hearing about this program that you work uh, with in regards to people that are blind or visually impaired. Um, you are helping these people to see art, as it were, and uh, it's a fascinating program. So please please tell me about that. Okay. So the purpose of the program is really, um, well, the way that we frame the program, the way we frame our programming at the museum is that we want to be accessible to anybody that comes in the museum and make sure that they can have an experience with the works of art. And so we've done a lot of training in the area of blind and low vision audiences um, in order to be prepared for anybody that could walk in the door and also to be prepared for special groups that come to us. And we've been really focused on trying to make um, uh, materials um, and also training, of course, with our volunteers, training ourselves, um, how to work with these audiences. And so we, we have kind of a, a barrage of different materials that we use whenever we have audiences like this come in. We really try to focus on it as a sensorial ex uh, approach to the works of art. And so um, we really tried to think about how can we engage this work of art in ways that we might not normally think about um, that go beyond the visual. And so uh, first off, of course, the first thing we do is focus on verbal descriptions. So we've had a number of trainings with the volunteers on how to approach describing an object where we've written up descriptions, we've talked about descriptions. Um, we also try to describe the space that people are in whenever they come into the museum to make them kind of accompanied to where they're at, um, what the scale of objects are. So we have to think about all of those kinds of things whenever we approach So you're, you're not only talking about what is on the wall, you're talking about the room that you're in to experience this or maybe how the light falls onto the painting, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, that has come up, yes, in those conversations. We get pretty in-depth once you get beyond the initial 
um, kind of basic description of what we're looking at. We go into conversation about the work of art that might include art historical information, historical information. But we do, um, if you if you give this kind of program enough time, and it works really well with uh, both our blind and low vision audiences and our general museum visitor, we find that everybody gets a lot out of this because mm. it's it's usually a pretty in-depth exploration. And what's really fascinating is, well, I, I, I remember spending time in a training program um, where we had constituents from the blind and low vision community as part of the program uh, to really kind of get us attuned to how to work with the audience. And we had been talking for quite a long time about El Greco and El Greco's painting style. I was that, I was, that was going to be the example of like something good to explain. Exactly. I mean, there's no reason to look in El Greco if you're not going to talk about the way it's painted. And, exactly. And that's the whole purpose of us looking at these artists, the whole purpose that uh, an artist like El Greco is so important. And so when we when we had gotten beyond the description of our St. Francis kneeling in meditation and we had gone beyond that and talked about the color and the painting and all these other things, then we started to talk about the brushstrokes because that's what is so important about looking at an El Greco. And, and that's what's really the, the fundamental importance about our collections. And so so, um, so we really do get beyond just that kind of initial in these conversations. Was it surprising how hard it was to get a good description of a painting? Because if we're talking about El Greco, you'd be like, they're pale and it's kind of stretched out and everybody's really gaunt. Like, yeah. you could you could say that and that would be an apt description, but that that is probably not helpful to a blind person at all. Well, I think, you know, that's really an important aspect of the way that we try to approach all of our teaching again is that we want the the teaching that we have in the museum to be a conversation. And so it really is about people asking questions and us returning, you know, with answers. And, and it's really in those situations best as a group effort. And so um, the way we kind of approach and the way we try to train the volunteers is to really facilitate conversations mm. about these works of art so people can um, – put their input in so they feel like they're part of the conversation and also so we're really answering what they actually want to know. And the most important aspect of that is listening. Is there any way to kind of gauge what they visualize? Usually they give feedback as to what they're what we're talking about. Um, we did this also with a Goya painting. Um, I, we have we have six Goya paintings, but we were actually working with a painting that was on loan. And we were talking about the way that it's painted. Because Which it one is, was it? Um, it was a painting from the Louvre. It was a portrait of Ferdinand Guimardet, who was the French ambassador to Spain in okay. Goya's time. And so it was interesting because, um, again, we were getting to that point of talking about the paint and, and people were explaining back what we were talking about. So you do get a sense that there's Exciting. understanding. And it really, again, comes down to that issue of conversation and really being able to I can't I can't stress enough the importance of listening. Whenever I go to other museums and I go on tours and sometimes you hear people ask questions and then they keep talking about something that they're interested in talking about and they're not really interested in listening to what people are, are saying um, and going off of that. So really, um, you know, for myself, I always try to build on what people are interested in and, and go the direction that, that, that my audience is taking me. You... So you're you're bringing these visually impaired people in, and in your so you're explaining these these paintings through discussion and, and also sculpture. But I guess maybe sculpture might be a little bit easier because you don't want to have people touching paintings, but you might be able to have them touch sculpture. We do. You do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is it easier? Or is that maybe? Am I it's, am I wrong about that? It's a different process. Um, I should say that in addition to description, we do have tactile and sensory materials. So we have. Um, we've created like um, smaller um, details of paintings so people can actually touch it. 
and and feel the paint surface that's been created on there so we can talk about the so like brush strokes like yes, examples of brush exactly. strokes and things like that examples of brush strokes or different textures that are created in some of our 20th century paintings there's actually gravel or sawdust mixed in with the paint so we did that so that we could talk about it um, there's raised areas in some paintings so we've created things like that so that people can actually feel it and we can talk about the, the relief qualities of mm. some of these works um, like we have a great painting by Diego Rivera it's a early cubist portrait that was done in 1915 uh, when he was working closely with Pablo Picasso um, it's actually down at the DMA right now in the Mexico show but we use that painting a lot because there's all these wonderful textures in that work and so that's one way we talk about it the other way of course is that there's a pipe in the subject of that painting so we actually will bring in a pipe and talk about a pipe and, and bring up that kind of sensory tactile quality of being able to hold a pipe and then also we have a number of scents that we've um, gotten from a company a perfume company <laughs> so we'll bring in the scent of tobacco so you can smell the tobacco and kind of have another kind of connection to what we're talking about when we're talking about this particular so you're painting. really attacking all the senses that that are still remaining exactly. to make sure that people have the best 3d view of what this painting is all about exactly and we'll even go to taste i mean it's a little difficult to do in the galleries because we don't like food up there but sometimes sure. we'll use jelly beans and um, we'll bring in a flavor that way because there's you know myriad flavors of jelly beans yeah. so when we're talking about oranges or orange trees or things like that we can talk about that in a, a, a whole different way whose idea was jelly beans that's genius um i don't know exactly that's like where... the perfect food for museum <laughs> and you're right there's uh, every flavor on the planet so uh, I don't know very who's... slick First came up with it, but I wouldn't be surprised. So um, a lot of these programs were developed by the former director of education, um, as well as others. I should give credit where credit's due. So Carmen Smith was the director of education until recently that I've been working with for quite a while. Um, but um, Allison Davidson was a person that worked with us on a lot of these projects. But one of the people that has been instrumental... Um, I should also mention Marianne Siller. Um, she's a, a national consultant on blindness and low vision, and she's local, and we worked very closely with her. She's been instrumental in getting us connected to a lot of people. But the the probably person that I think might have instigated the jelly beans was uh, the artist John Bramblett, who we've worked with quite a bit since we started these programs about seven years ago. Um, and John is an artist who is blind, and he actually um, did an activity with the jelly beans where he was getting people to connect these ideas of color uh, to the senses. And the way John actually paints is he paints... Um, he paints in a tactile way, I should say first. So he paints very tactily with raised lines and also with different textured paints. That's how he knows what he's working with. Um, and so he kind of develops his paintings that way. But the way that he uses color is really associated with music or sound. And so he talks a lot about that whenever he teaches. And he's a really inspirational teacher. And I know, um, actually, it's, it's part of a project that we're going to be doing next week. Um, I think the jelly beans are going to come back into play. So he's using jelly beans <laughs> to give people an impression of a color yes because you make that you, you hear people say stuff like that all the time you're like that tastes like blue exactly and it sounds like a stupid thing to say but when you really think about it that might be a great way to do it mm -hmm. well again it's not just for this one audience but for any audience i think when we bring in these associative qualities into talking about works of art and it's something we've really been thinking a lot about you you had mentioned that you saw the giuseppe rivera uh, drawing exhibition that we just had yes. and um, one of the things about rivera's work is that he's very much about the five senses it's something that was part of a print series that was in the show there was even um, a scream in one of the paintings that you saw yeah. in that exhibition so we've been really trying to think about um, how do we talk 
about the senses when we talk about a work of art with any of our audiences lately, but it, it really brings this kind of different dimension and and recall of memory, which is a whole other thing um, that, that people might have. Uh, we don't know what kind of connections we might be making to people when we bring these things in. If, if, if someone is listening that is blind or visually impaired that would like to get involved with some of these programs you guys have going, how do people how do people do that? Well, we have uh, we've worked with different audiences. Again, our, our real effort is to be um, ready anytime com- someone comes in. So our our docents, if they come to a regular tour, they can just let people know um, that they're um, blind or have or, or, or low vision, and they will include description in the tours. We've got all the materials that we've created so far. Uh, for the paintings that we have been working and focusing on, um, they're ready to go upstairs right next to the gallery. So this is this is much like you know those those things that you listen to when you walk around a museum. I mean, it's almost like that where if you are blind and you show up. These things are ready. You guys are always prepared. Exactly. That's the idea behind this. So, like, often schools will come and they won't tell us that they have a student who has low vision, and then we'll find that out when they get there. But thankfully, the the um, the docents at the museum they're already prepared to work with that. So they'll just include more verbal descriptions and work with the class um, in a different way. Amazing. Uh, unfortunately, we're running low on time, but let's talk about what you guys have in coming up on the calendar. I know you guys have some great exhibitions on the way. So what is coming up at the Meadows? So our next exhibition is a, a group of paintings. It's a small focus show, but it's uh, focusing on our Pablo Picasso painting from 1915, which is called Still Life in a Landscape, and um, our Diego Rivera painting, from also from 1915, which is a portrait of Ilya Ehrenberg. And it's really focused on the use of still life and this play of these undefined indoor-outdoor spaces. So the, the show is called uh, Picasso Rivera, Still Life in the Precedence of Form. And that opens on August 6th, and it runs till November the 5th. I believe. Okay. And then you guys also have a family program coming up at almost the same time. Yeah. So um, from the um, the 8th through the 11th, um, that first week of the Picasso Rivera show, we're going to be doing family activities in the galleries. We're going to have some storytelling later in the week, um, some things to kind of kick off that program and to kick off the end of the summer and beginning of school. So I hope people will come out and we'll have things going on all day, those four days of the week. And I uh, hope you'll turn up and get to see the exhibition. It's a wonderful facility with an excellent collection. It is the Meadows Museum. You can find them online at meadowsmuseumdallas.org. I've been speaking with their interim director of education, Scott Winterrode. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you stopping by. Thanks for having us on and uh, exposing the museum. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.